Hi there, I'm Dan Jones, and this is my podcast, Climate Scientists. I'm an oceanographer, and on this podcast, I have long and formal conversations with climate relevant researchers. It's my opportunity to sit down with people that I want to talk to, and it's always a pleasure. And my hope is that in the process, we get a better sense of how science actually happens, which is often much more community driven and more creative than popular depictions of science might lead you to believe. Ultimately, climate science happens because these people get up in the morning and get to it. Coming up, I'm really excited to present this conversation with Ethan Campbell, a PhD student in physical oceanography at the School of Oceanography at the University of Washington. And if you're not familiar, in oceanography, that's one of the big ones. That's one of the big schools <laughs> um, that does a lot of oceanography and trains a lot of people. Among other things, Ethan works on offshore polinias, which are gigantic holes in the sea ice. For those of you familiar with U.S. geography, these holes, which uh, show up around Antarctica and the sea ice around Antarctica, are about the size of the state of Maine by surface area. For a European reference, they're about the size of Scotland. Polinias, they've really fascinated polar oceanographers for decades now. The Polinias were first observed by satellite in the 1970s, returning regularly for a couple of years until they just mysteriously stopped happening. No more giant Polinias for decades. Then the hole reappeared in 2016 and then again in 2017. This was really exciting. The Polinias had been absent for about 40 years and then just suddenly they reappeared? What? Ethan recently had a paper appear in Nature titled Antarctic Offshore Polinias Linked to Southern Hemisphere Climate Anomalies, in which he and his co-authors used satellite data of sea ice cover, robotic drifters called, called? <laughs> called Argo floats, and even seals outfitted with sensors to better understand the polinia. They explored why the hole appears only in some years and what it could do in terms of larger ocean circulation. You can find Ethan on Twitter at Ethan2C, so that's the number two, and C is S-E-A, with his first name, Ethan, there. Um, it was really a pleasure to talk with Ethan. We connected over email, and we had this conversation because he's in Washington, and I'm here in Cambridge, UK. We decided to just go ahead and have a conversation over the phone for now with the possibility that we might do a longer interview if we get a chance to meet up in person perhaps at Ocean Sciences or some other conference. Uh, hopefully we can get that to happen sometimes. But the remote connection worked well. That's part of why this interview is a little bit shorter. The remote ones where I'm just over the phone do tend to be more compressed and they do tend to be a little shorter. But that's fine. You know, we really had a focused particular topic to talk about. We wanted to talk about his nature paper uh, specifically, whereas most of these podcast. Most of these episodes are much more general and much broader. We did make a reference, or I made a reference rather, that I felt like was a bit a bit inside baseball, so to speak, and I wanted to define some of the terms up top here. I made a reference to mixed layer depth later on in the podcast, and that is the depth over which mixing has established uniform temperature and salinity, uniform properties in general, in the upper part of the ocean. So that's what I'm referring to. And I also, we use the term bathymetry. The bathymetry is just the depth of the ocean. So a map of bathymetry would display seamounts and ridges and other features like that. It basically gives you a sense of the features, the geographic kind of features that exist 
on the seafloor. Okay, so I thought, uh, yeah, I should define those things because we made a reference to them, and then I, I should have done better editorializing in the moment and said what they are, but I thought uh, I would just put them in here at the top. Yep, okay, so let's go ahead and get into this conversation. Thanks very much to Ethan for taking the time out to have this conversation with me. I really enjoyed it, and I hope that you enjoy it as well. So here we go, Ethan Campbell, take it away. Maybe a good place to start is, what was the history of this project? Like, how did this particular bit of work come about for, for you personally? Yeah, that's that's a story that I I, don't, I didn't really get to tell in, in, uh, to the media, so it's kind of exciting. But I, I was actually, it originated a number of years ago. I was a summer intern at, at University of Washington. It was the summer after my sophomore year of college, so quite a while back. And I was uh, working with, with Steve, uh, Steve Reiser, in his uh, float group, and he had all of this new data from these under-ice floats that just hadn't really been explored yet. And it, it was just such a rich data set. Um, as, as I'm sure you know, and as most people know here, it's, it's hard to sample under the ice, especially you know, in winter. And uh, there's just such a, a limited body of prior measurements. And he basically suggested that I just you know, take a look at the data, see what I find. Um, and oh, by the way, you know, there are these floats that, that have been sampling near Mod Rise, this seamount in the Whiddell Sea. And it happens to be an oceanographically interesting area for a number of reasons, um, chief of which is that, that these plinias tend to form over it. And there were some, some floats. Uh, these were not SOCOM floats. Uh, this is a pre-SOCOM era. And, uh, uh, but they, they had, they had a TNS and, and also oxygen uh, sensors. And uh, I was checking out their data, and one of them happened to surface in the middle of winter in uh, what was very likely just a small hole, but it was over mod rise. And uh, that got me, you know, interested in these plinios. And I um, hadn't realized, I think it took, it took a while to, to realize the, the depth of work that had been done on these over the past yeah, four decades. And it's just so, so, so it much. just happened to come up in like a smaller polynia, like a smaller opening as it was kind of starting to, to grow. So you were able to capture some data or this float, you know, captured some data on the, the, the whole kind of growth phase of the polynia. This, uh, actually it was, it was, I, w I wouldn't even call it maybe a polynia. It was just a, a, it could have been a lead, uh, something small in it. Um, whatever it was, it, it didn't last very long. This is, prior to the, the larger, larger openings in 2016. Oh, okay. I got you. This was a few years ago, and this was a smaller smaller opening. Yeah. Okay, yeah, right. It, it, it piqued my interest, and it, it piqued his. And, um, yeah, and that was that was sort of the start of things, and I, I didn't really return to that, that data set um, for a number of years. Uh, and, and, you know, I started uh, my PhD three years ago and, and thought that this would be an interesting project to pursue. So then I, then I came back to it, and... Flinius opened up big ones in, in 2016 and 17, the big ones. Just perfect timing. So did which which way did that yeah. go? Did you decide to work on it again and then the Polinias opened up or did it go the other way? <laughs> it was it was very serendipitous. I, I was my my proposal for uh, that I sent out to to places for for, for grad school apps was involving the Polinias. <laughs> 
That's cool. So you started, uh, and that was at Washington, you started that project? Yeah, yeah, that's what it was here at UW. Okay, so then uh, there, there happened to be some Argo data, some float data that you were able to get from these Polinias or nearby. What was the data collection? What was the data collection pr yeah. process like? Yeah, I, I was I was really fortunate in that I stepped into this this SOCOM project, uh, which I, you know, had had no role in, in the um, the development of it. it was this was all uh, a, a multi institution team that had spent many years um, getting this this project together and starting to deploy these floats and or also you know just develop the sensors and and they had deployed a, a few floats over Modrise. Um, this is largely the, the brainchild of uh, Lynn Talley, who uh, leads a lot of the, the float deployments and chooses where, where floats have to be. And, um, you know, we're lucky enough that they were there when the Plinias opened up. Uh, that was that was more or less luck, but the, the choice of deployment location was, was not. So you were able to get temperature readings, salinity readings, oxygen, and yeah. yeah. And yeah. a number of others actually that didn't didn't make it into the paper. Yeah, chlorophyll, and nitrate, um, pH, backscatter. Yeah, huh. yeah. I'm just looking at your figure four from the um, from the from the article that came out, which I can link and I can mention it in the intro, and I can link to it when I when I tweet it. But yeah, in your figure four, you've got these depth versus time plots, and it's it's yeah. neat to see you know the temperature signals going right down. There's you know, warm water going down, cold water going down. The salinity, like the high salinity from, uh, excuse me, oh, sorry, the low salinity from the surface, of course, yeah. you know, is being kind of yeah. pulled down into the interior um, really far down, you know, 1,000 meters, 1,500 meters. I feel like I can see a signal of a fairly coherent yeah. signal all the way through. Yeah, that was, and this, yeah, this plot is just like, it's very simple. It's just bread and butter oceanography, but it, it was it was a eureka moment when we saw that it was, uh, to, to see the, the high oxygen, especially because there's just no other other way to get high oxygen uh, that deep besides vertical mixing. Right. Yeah. So when this happened, I sort of I sort of heard people, you know, speculating about various causes and trying to connect it to, you know, processes in the the model. And yeah. one of them that I heard. So what I can do is I'll I'll just throw these against the wall and then feel free to react to them sure. or kind of <laughs> correct them based on what you found now. And I, I have read a little bit about it, but so I, I might have some idea where you're going to go with it. But so one idea mm -hmm. was um, that Mod Rise in particular plays, you know, the seamount plays a role in enhancing mixing downstream, and that yeah. sometimes for some reason that mixing that vertical mixing uh, starts to uh, increase in magnitude and start it starts to bring kind of relatively warm water from the deep up to the surface where it can melt the surface uh, sea ice and make it difficult for new sea ice to form so uh, one kind of tongue-in-cheek proposal i heard for uh, getting rid of the Polinias was to was to flatten mod rise, you know. And this was this is a bunch of modelers oh, talking. So this oh is no. this is how we talk sometimes. We're like, well, what happens yeah. if you just like squash that part of the symmetry? <laughs> just zero it, zero it out. Yeah, because we can do that, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, um, well, I guess let me ask you: Do you think flattening mod rise would get rid of the Polinias? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think what you're what you're talking about is turning a a high resolution simulation into a coarse resolution one mm. essentially and and that's of course been done and, and in a lot of the 
the you know the one degree resolution models that are in the IPCC um, report, the the CMIP five ensemble, they have you know, they they barely resolve mod rise, and, mm -hmm. and yet plenias do form uh, in the Widow, not necessarily over mod rise, but more in the central of the at the center of the gyre where you expect preconditioning um, to, to be to be maximal, similar to the North Atlantic. Yeah, I guess I've heard um, the idea, and I'm not sure how much I, I believe it or not, but I guess I've heard the idea that in those coarse resolution climate models, they're really not good at forming bottom water, like the, you know, the densest, coldest water right. on the bottom, and that people sometimes say, well, the, the Polinias, the open ocean Polinias just have to form because... Mm -hmm. The, that that's a way to form bottom water. That's a way to, for that the model is trying to compensate for its lack of ability to form bottom water near Antarctica, like on the Antarctic yeah. shelves. Um, I don't know yeah. how, how true that is, but it's one I idea. Um, and I, I saw you, you, you all had written a little bit about that kind of near the end of the paper um, yeah. where you're talking about. Uh, yeah. yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a, a great, uh, I think it's an accurate concept and, um, or accurate description of, of the situation. And uh, there's, there have been a few papers, I think some by uh, Celine Huse, who uh, that she, she's shown that the models that have the most accurate uh, bottom water properties are actually those that do form uh, deep, uh, form from bottom water offshore of the continent, hmm. uh, sort of, as you said, I think by, by necessity, uh, which is unfortunate. I mean, and, and well, to, to some extent, it's fortunate in that we have bottom water that's not as terribly biased as it could be, but of course it's not being formed in anywhere near the right um, set of processes. So the, the ability for models to predict the future to, to, to look back into the past is, is limited because the processes are, are all you know, slightly wrong there. Yeah, yeah. So you get the wrong kind of ocean layering of different densities and that causes all kinds of circulation problems and things. Um, yeah. Maybe I should back up to a more basic question and just ask you. So, okay, so based on your analysis, what's causing what, what was causing the Polinias? What's causing these giant holes in the sea ice to form? Yeah, yeah. So we we blame uh, two two anomalies, and uh, neither of them I think are, are particularly surprising. They both rest on a lot of prior work and, and field observations. But uh, one of them is that we find uh, stratification was, uh, upper ocean stratification was very weak leading into that first 2016 millennia. Uh, and we blame that on, um, well, we, we think that it's, it's probably because of uh, stronger upwelling than usual. Um, and uh, with that upwelling, salt fluxes into the mix layer um, due to those, those that equipment upwelling. And that weak stratification has been known to you know, be a, a normal feature of this area, that above mod rise, you normally have a weaker halocline and therefore a you know, predisposition to overturning. But um, the, uh, you know, blaming that solidly on, on and, and, and looking at the interannual variability of that is, is one innovation, I think. You mentioned stronger upwelling. I, I know we uh, yeah. can't carry the chain of logic all the way back, but any idea what's causing mm -hmm. the stronger upwelling? Yeah, yeah. We we point to this this record strong wind wind stress curl that preceded the Plinius, and that uh, that signal is, is unambiguous. You know, the link to upwelling is a little um, more so because it's a calculation that is is not easy to do when there's um, when there's sea ice cover, but. It's uh, in, in 2015 and 2016, there was this 
very low pressure over the Whittle Sea, accompanied by, uh, if you look at longer term fluctuations, uh, more positive SAM than usual, southern, southern, any other mode. So strengthening and contraction of the westerlies towards Antarctica. And uh, we think that that would have naturally led to more falling. So there's two things you mentioned there, right? You mentioned the kind of individual storm-based events, mm. right? Individual yeah. low-pressure events, which can lead to changes in wind stress curl. And then yeah. you mentioned the longer-term kind of decadal scale strengthening and poleward shift of the westerly wind jet that encircles Antarctica. Yeah, yeah so you're, are you kind of saying those two things can reinforce each other, can kind of push the wind in, into a similar direction, and both yeah, of them can lead to stronger upwelling? It's, it's complicated, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's quite a bit convolved in, in there. Yeah, and, and it, so so we, you know, we show that, that there were these very strong storms that yeah. barreled through, and every time there was a storm, there was a drop in sea ice concentration, hmm. essentially, and, and yeah. the largest of those drops were associated with the opening of these planias. Hmm. And it's, it's a signal that, that doesn't hold just in 2016 and 17, but in past years as well. And right. uh, a number of reasons for that, probably turbulent mixing of warm water from uh, being pulled up into the mix layer from these uh, the, the friction of the ice rubbing on, on the water. Huh. But um, the, the storms are also, as you, as you mentioned, they're related to these larger signals. And yes. In positive sand years, you tend to have more storms uh, and the low pressure signal itself, that, that low, uh, the, the, the low pressure that drives the Whittell, um, it's sort of a, an agglomerate of, of storms and that uh, the, the low pressure is more signal of just uh, more frequent storms passing through the, the region. Right, um, right. Yeah. And all of them kind of, well, the, the bulk effect is more upwelling of kind of saltier, saltier water from below. Yeah. 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 And when you said to, it weakens the halocline, it weakens the, the salt stratification is another way to say it, right? That weakens the exactly. kind of salt gradient, the, the vertical salt gradient throughout the ocean, which um, that would encourage mixing. Because if you have kind of weak exactly. stratification, you get, it, it's easier to mix through something that has a pretty uniform density throughout it. Yeah. yeah, you yeah. produce that barrier to mix in. Yeah. Okay, so we got the wind stress curl, we got salt fluxes coming up from from below, and that can yeah. that can make that can help encourage the Polynia formation, and yeah. w- which then further kind of encourages. Okay. Yeah, and, and and of course, not, not neither of these are you know particularly novel. That you know, model simulations have shown that that when you have that more cyclonic wind stress curl, you're you're more likely to form a Polynia, um, but this is. Yeah, it was, it was the first time we showed this in observations, I think. Yeah, so for your methods, um, you did some correlations, did some correlation analysis there. Yeah, pretty pretty straightforward stuff, yeah. Yeah, basic, some basic statistics and some kind of yeah. physical mm-hmm. physical plausibility arguments, you know? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, 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 good. So did we capture this, the main bulk of the story, you feel like? Is there anything you want to add to the just the, the mechanistic part of it? Yeah, you know, I, I think um, one of the most interesting puzzles here, and, and one that we probably didn't fully resolve in this, is is the the fact that you have you have these these feedbacks at work. Um, these feedbacks have been identified, you know, a, a few decades ago, largely from work by uh, Doug Martinson at, at Lamont, and uh, they arise from the fact that you have this warm water 
that's right below the mix layer. And every time you have a storm or you uh, reject some brine from ice formation and you deepen the mix layer into that body of warm water, that thermocline, you entrain the warm water into the mix layer and therefore counteract uh, you know, ice formation. You melt some ice, you uh, result in a, a freshwater flux into the mix layer that stabilizes the system. So that there's this sort of puzzle, like how do you actually initiate a planea? How do you uh, initiate overturning when everything you do tends to stabilize the system by bringing up this warm water? And uh, it's a it's a tough one. This is called the uh, it's referred to as a, a thermal barrier, hmm. the presence of this thermofine. And yeah, whereas I, this, I is, this is whereas this is to some extent an unstable you know, mode, like it's an unstable kind of growth of a, a polynia. It stops at some point. So it's not, you know, <laughs> it's not like a runaway unstable, but it is unstable, yeah. you know, for a while. Yeah. I, I, I should tell you about my, my experience with polynias as, as a modeler and maybe I should have, yeah. <laughs> I probably should have led with this because, uh, so I, I was, work, it? <laughs> it was pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, so I was working with a, a one six of a degree, you know, eddy permitting Southern ocean model and uh, I started, I just, just was running it, just free running. And uh, so I noticed after about five or six years that the sea ice concentration started to, to go down. It started to drop. And, uh, well, if I ran them much longer than that, they would just, the model would totally crash and the computer would, would freak out and the job would die. So I started digging into <laughs> it. And uh, wouldn't you know it, I was getting these gigantic polinias opening up in the Weddell Sea and the Ross Sea. <laughs> you know, yeah. popping up roughly where you, where we saw these things. Um, yeah. and, but, it, but it was a complete runaway effect because, um, as soon as you open the polinias, you get really strong vertical mixing, you know, all the way throughout the water column. Uh, the sea, so that the, it would bring out warm water from below and melt the sea ice even further, which yeah. would just encourage more vertical mixing. The isopycnals got, you know, the density surfaces got really steep, and my mm-hmm. um, my ACC circulation got up to like 250 sphere drops, just mm. kind of tear, tearing through there. And um, yeah, I've read that's a big a big a big after effect. Basically, yes. Yeah. yeah, and then my favorite the result from this my the this is one of my uh, plots that I uh, I need to make sure I kept that thing around. So it was a plot of the mixed layer depth right before this model crashed, and it was oh, literally no. just a bisymmetry plot. <laughs> <laughs> like what's the oh, mix layer terrible. the whole ocean is the mix layer <laughs> yeah. yeah so it's uh, one interesting point that brings up though is like well that's that's interesting that that was a total runaway process in my model but not in the atmosphere not in the real world luckily mm-hmm. um and in my model it was uh, ocean only so i wonder if there's some interesting you know the the role of air sea coupling of the, the ocean and atmosphere talking to each other that kind of arrests the mm. you know run, runaway growth of these polinias, um, or if there's some other process that I don't have you know that I didn't have in the model. Um, Interesting, yeah, yeah. So that, that might that's something something to think about. Um, so yeah, the, it's, it's a certain. I I think I, it's worth mentioning that certainly that. It's not not just your model, but but, but many many people's models. And, uh, the, the best, the state of the art models right now, and are, are having issues with these. That you know, yeah. their teams at FG, GFDL who are um, you know, trying to correct drift issues due to these plenias, and it's um, it's persistent and it's 
certainly troubling. That's right. So many of them, so many models do this. Yeah, so many models open up these polinias, these runaway polinias in the model. Um, yeah. Yeah, my, my colleague Dave Monday has been developing a model where he, he of the Southern Ocean where he had to deal with, with this, you know, even at a much higher resolution. So just cranking up the resolution isn't enough to get rid of that, that issue. I, I have noticed that, that there are 10th of a degree models that still have this, this issue, yeah. Yeah. So I, I like in the paper, you kind of briefly mentioned that, you know, the Southern Ocean, the surface stratification plays a big role in ventilation and how easy it is to get heat and carbon down into the interior ocean. So is there anything you'd like to say about that, about how, you know, these polinias, uh, I guess you mentioned in the paper that you, you all are thinking they'll be more common in the future, possibly, you know, under climate change, at least you, you made a you made a plausible, you know, sounding argument for, well, all of these yeah. processes <laughs> under climate change will will increase or decrease in various ways that that should lead to more polinias in the future. Is is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's that's, that's what we speculate. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know? So I guess what effect would that have for ventilation? For like how easy it is, or other easy or hard it is to get heat and carbon into the into the deep ocean through the southern ocean. Gosh, that's I think that's, a, that's the million dollar question. I think that yeah, uh, you know there 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 have been results at all of the museum models um, that show that that these polinias play a large role in in carbon uh, sequestration or, or lack of, and uh, I think the the open question is 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 that you know that these model results are often reliant on models that have a lot larger, more persistent, right, longer lasting polinias than hmm. the ones that we see in reality. So. Uh, you know, maybe you can just scale those results down, and and you still get some some carbon fluxes out of out of these planes. But um, it's not it's it's not you know very certain how one could do that. And um, it's you know I, I think it, just from a back of the envelope calculation, it's it's possible that, that each of these planes puts out um, it releases something on the order of magnitude of like a tenth of a pentagram of carbon. But hmm. um, depending on that, that could be large if you. So, you know, so tenth of the pentagram, maybe, but it's compared to the anthropogenic input into the atmosphere is, is quite small. Is um, that because they're mixing up kind of carbon-rich waters from below? That's that's exactly the idea. Yeah, and and of course that also that depends on the the gas equilibration timescales and what's you know what's actually happening at the surface, and then also the amount of carbon that's in the atmosphere at the you know, in a given year. Huh. Um, so there there's a lot of there's a lot of uncertainty there, and we. Um, we're not sure if we're going to be able to get at it using the the, the pH and you know, the, the carbon measurements we have from these floats. It's, it's possible, right? Well, if you could have anything you wanted, what um, what would you do next in regards to this problem? Like, if you had all the resources mm. you wanted. <laughs> oh wow! Guys, I think it would be neat to have a sort of rapid response team for if, if a large plane opened to 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 bring a, a ship down and. Um, have a field campaign that's more or less ready to go. I think you know that's that's absolutely pie in the sky. It's never never going to happen because it's just so expensive and and uh, and the, the amount of preparation that goes into to a wintertime cruise, especially into the sea ice zone, is is tremendous. Um, well, I but might, you know there. Sorry, I was oh, going to yeah. say yeah. I was going to say oh, yeah, well, yeah. I might encourage you to dream big because it does happen sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, there's the yeah, whole, yeah, 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 yeah. The, the whole Thwaites Glacier uh, was a fairly rapid response, and um, yeah, the it, it it didn't 
work out quite like they wanted in the end, but you, you probably saw uh, the British mm -hmm. Antarctic Survey sent out a ship when the, um, I think it was the Larsen Sea, you know, there were some icebergs breaking yeah. off of that, and they, they were hoping to get yeah. down there just as the iceberg was, was separating, but they, they ran yeah. into, they, they got, got down there kind of as quick as they feasibly could, but they weren't able to get through the, the sea ice. So I guess that would obviously yeah. be a problem is to get to the hole in the ice, because it's in the middle, you got to get through the rest of the rest of the sea ice. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and it's, it's, you know, folks have done it, they, Shackleton did it, I suppose, and there have been, have been field <laughs> campaigns that made it to Madras, but I, it's... Uh, it would be a challenge. And I think maybe more so the bigger challenge should be convincing folks that this is a, a, something that's, that's uh, worth doing such an effort. I guess if you've got those big numbers about carbon flux and heat flux and are able to demonstrate that it's important, then it might be easier to to make that case, possibly. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, but. Okay. Yeah, well, maybe. I mean, we we've got the autonomous, you know, floats out there, and that's that is helpful. Although you can't really guarantee that they will be exactly where you need them. Um, yeah, but yeah, that that's the the more realistic answer is a, a combination of uh, you know floats and gliders and instrumented seals and every everything that we that we have at our disposal today is, is um, certainly giving back more data than we can use. So it's, uh, I'll keep those busy for a while. So maybe uh, just more more of what we have, not necessarily a brand new thing, yeah. but uh, you know more of the kind of observing system that we do have. Um, it, would, it would be cool if we could direct some of these platforms in a rapid kind of way towards making new observations. You know, like if the Polina opened up, if we had a way to direct some some things to like, okay, go. We, we need you to go take these measurements now because this thing is happening. We would, yeah, and you know, gliders gliders have that capability, but it's uh, of course communicating with them under the ice if they can even uh, you know, survive under the ice is, is not possible. So, uh, that's, you know, that I, <laughs> I have heard in, 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 in uh, speaking of pie in the sky ideas, some, some people have thought of uh, air deployed, um, air deployed floats and not, not just from a, a manned <laughs> aircraft, but an autonomous aircraft. So, you know, if a drone that brings a float down <laughs> into the plane, yeah. So you got uh, a little drone carrying <laughs> an Argo float underneath it, right? And oh, it would be a big, a very big drone. <laughs> yes, big drone. Yeah. That's, I think that's many years away, though. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a hilarious picture in my head for some reason. Just like the drone with this dangling, you know, cylinder <laughs> underneath it. <laughs> a little ungainly, not not very aerodynamic, certainly. No, definitely not. Um, huh. Well, let's see. Uh, so the well it's it's a it's a really cool study and I'm I am really happy that I got a chance to talk with you about it. Is is there anything else about the this particular bit of work that you'd like to talk about? Oh gosh. Um I I think that was a pretty thorough thorough overview there. Yeah. yeah any any other um uh maybe uh, stuff on the periphery of the work or um any, any other any other questions you might you might have? Well, do you? Um, so this is, is I'm guessing part of your PhD project, you, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, so you um, at some point will kind of fold this into a I'm guessing kind of fold it into a dissertation, and um, mm -hmm. you don't have to tell me your like dissertation plan, but I'm just wondering <laughs> what other kind of bits kind of do you see folding into there that, that might complement this kind of work? You know, what are you what are you kind of working on now and, and trying to throw into the into the mix mm. yeah I, I i think that's a, a question i don't know the answer to completely yet but yes yeah. uh, there are a lot of 
um, you know, directions that this points in. And I think one of those is uh, solidifying the, the link between these storms and ice loss. And it's, um, you know, there's been quite a bit of work on uh, the ice loss processes uh, at the edge of the, of the ice zone, um, which have a large impact on how ice expands and, and contracts. But um, those loss processes within the seasonal ice zone are, are not super well understood. Um, and, uh, you know, also all th thinking about the biogeochemical impacts of these planias, uh, in particular, how, how they're linked to, uh, uh, the, 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 to give a little bit of a, a preview, we, we see these very large, uh, phytoplankton blooms that occurred after the planias and uh, both in 2016 and 17. And, um, there's certainly a link there. Uh, I think connecting those two would be. I mean, the the usual first guess would be: is it bringing up iron or something like a micro, a limiting micronutrient to, yeah, like yeah, something yeah. Yeah, something like that. That's a, that's a good, yeah, good first guess. Huh. Good. Well, that, that sounds really interesting. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah, changes in stratification and, and uh, the summer, uh, I guess, the length of uh, insulation is could be another factor there. Or uh, something that we're we're actively working on. Yeah. Nice. Well, I hope you don't mind me asking, but I hope you've, uh, or saying, but I hope you've taken some time to like celebrate and appreciate it. It's a cool, <laughs> cool bit of work and it must, must feel good to have it out there and, and done. It's, it's been nice. Yeah. It, it was, it was hard to celebrate in that uh, very busy few weeks of talking to, to reporters about it. But um, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> it feels, feels like it finally coming down from that high and it's uh, coming back to earth. That's, that's good. Yeah, well, thanks for um, allowing one more person to talk to you about it. <laughs> and uh, I don't, I don't think of myself as a. I'm not a journalist. I just like to talk to people and record it. Um, <laughs> but thanks yeah, for letting yeah, me talk to you and record it. <laughs> a, a big fan of your your podcast, and it's, uh, it's it's nice to speak to someone who I don't have to you know explain the meaning of stratification or. Or, or even plenty <laughs> well, refreshing. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, and uh, are you coming to Ocean Sciences? I probably will. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah I probably will as well. That's, that's my my hope. Abstracts are already yeah, due in September. Yeah, I saw. I got the got the notification. They're open now. Yeah. 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 We need to meet you there. Cool. Yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully we can meet there. Hopefully I can uh, run into you there. Um, good. And maybe sometime, um, the, the offer is definitely, if you wanted to do a long format one sometime, um, that's, that's fine too. Um, you know, that's the, because this one was a pretty short kind of focused just on this particular bit of work. And, you know, usually we talk a little bit more about people's kind of pathway into science and whatnot. Um, yeah. but it's, uh, and we actually can, if you want to, um, it's, I just sometimes doing that in person is, is kind of nice. Um, yeah. 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 But that'll be, that'll be fun. I think in, in general, any, any, uh, any interviewing, any, any PhD student would be a, a neat, a neat, uh, uh, experience there. Do we want to do the short version? Do you want to tell me just a little bit about your kind of pathway of like how you ended up where you are? Sure. Yeah. It was, uh, I think as, as it's common with most people, uh, I didn't start and start college thinking that I would become an oceanographer, but, uh, I was, uh, doing, doing civil engineering to start and then switched to geosciences after that, uh, internship that I mentioned, the, the one yeah. that, 
led to working at Argo Data for the first time. And uh, from there, it was, it was pretty much uh, one thing after another, and, and it just um, it snowballed. I, I spent some time doing uh, nitrogen isotope geochemistry and, and switched back to more physical uh, physical focus and cryosphere focus. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. yeah. So it's a function of interest and opportunity, as, as it often is. And yeah, there's yeah. De- definitely a lot of opportunity at Washington. Yeah, yeah. It was. Um, I, th- I think what, what I've heard in your in your uh, interviews with other folks is maybe a common thread that uh, a lot of people find not just a subject that they enjoy, but but people that they enjoy and uh, you know advisors that they feel very comfortable with, and uh, that it was certainly the case with me. Oh, good. Yeah, especially th- that's exactly right. You know, you you kind of get drawn into a community if you have a positive experience you know, and, and you hope that people do have that kind of positive experience of feeling like you're you're kind of um yeah you, you have a pathway into a set of people and a set of mm. you know of interesting problems and a set of interesting things to talk about and um yeah, that, uh, yeah there absolutely is that kind of community aspect yeah, yeah. cool well is there anything else how, how are you feeling anything else you want to talk about I think I'm feeling feeling good about this. This is I like the idea of a short short format, uh, paper focused uh, podcast, and so that's it's very digestible for an audience. I think so that's, that's good. Nice. Okay. Well, thanks. Thanks very much, Ethan. And uh, yeah, like I said, I'm I'm very open to you know if you wanted to do a long one at some point, that's totally fine. And uh, I'm very open to that. Yeah, and I that would be fun. Thanks. Yeah. I hope you enjoy the rest of your your PhD. I hope it goes well, and I look forward to seeing you around. Thanks. Absolutely. Yeah, you too. Okay. Well, I guess that's it. Then uh, thanks, Ethan. It's good talking with you, Dan. Good talking with you. Yeah. Yeah. Bye. Have a good one. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. There you have it. My conversation with Ethan Campbell from the University of Washington. The paper that we discussed, it's in Nature. The title is Antarctic Offshore Polinias Linked to Southern Hemisphere Climate Anomalies. So you can look that up at the 2019 paper from kind of earlier in the year. Like I mentioned in the introduction, you can find Ethan on Twitter at Ethan2C. That's the number two and the word S-E-A. No spaces or underscore or anything like that. For updates on the podcast, you can follow on Twitter at ClimateSciPod. And I'm at Dan Jones Ocean on Twitter as well. Thanks again to Ethan for taking the time out of his busy PhD schedule to have a conversation over the phone with me. And uh, thanks to all of you for listening and subscribing and for leaving reviews. Uh, I really appreciate it. All of that helps keep the podcast going. It helps keep the momentum going. I'm still on a monthly schedule for now, so you can expect about one of these a month. Um, That seems to be a roughly kind of sustainable schedule for me. The two-week thing was getting a bit... A bit too much, but I think I can manage this. Okay, take care, and we'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.